welcome to the Canadian Space Society podcast, Space A. I'm your host, Mahima, and today we're back with another episode exploring topics such as science communication and podcasting, field research and analog missions, and spending some time getting to know our guest, Gavin Talometti. Gavin is an aspiring science communicator and holds a PhD in geology and planetary sciences from Western University. He's got experience working at the Canadian Space Agency, workshop experience from the European Space Agency, and now works as an outreach high school program coordinator at Western University. So welcome to the episode, Gavin. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be on the show today. Awesome. We're excited to have you. So I've got a couple of interesting and fun questions for you today. So let me dive right in. I've given a little bit of an intro about your background here, but tell me more about your personal and professional journey getting involved in space. Of course. So this will actually take us back to the final year of my undergrad when I was studying geology back in Scotland at the University of St. Andrews. Around then, I was still in the mindset of hard rock geology. I never really can considered space as a career because even then I still had the mindset that if you weren't a top scientist or an engineer you had no chance of working in the space industry because that's just all the information I could ever get from mainstream media or people that I knew but it wasn't until I took a course that studied volcanics and mountain building in my fourth year that we had a special lecture understanding the difference between the composition of Mars and Venus. And that's when it really started to get me thinking that perhaps this is a field I can study more about to understand a lot more about how other planets in our solar system formed, including our own. So I talked to the professor after this lecture and he said, there are ways you can get into planetary science besides going through uh, being a top scientist, looking at um, specific fields such as um, sun or probably trying to understand the universe through astronomy and or trying to go through engineering you can go through planetary science so i asked i delved deeper to try and figure out what could be my next steps near the after my undergrad and that's when i came across western universities back then the center for planetary science and exploration uh, a way of getting exposure into planetary science research but also still studying geology so after i completed my undergrad in 2016 uh, two months after my graduation, I flew over to Canada to start my then master's, which eventually became a PhD in geology and planetary science. And I left early to go to Canada because I was doing field work ahead of time before I officially started the semester. So I was getting a jump start in my research, getting to study lava flows in Idaho to try and understand how lava flows on the moon potentially formed millions of years ago. And from then, that's when I started to get exposed to different fields in planetary science. I worked with both my supervisors, Dr. Gornizinski and Catherine Nish, that exposed me to various fields such as analog science missions, um, analog field work, looking into how we could use radar to understand the changing landscape of our own planets and in addition to other planetary bodies such as the Moon and Mars and Venus. And then I started to gain some exposure through opportunities at workshops that you mentioned in the intro, working with the European Space Agency, working with the Canadian Space Agency, and even doing internships at NASA trying to understand how we can plan sample return missions for sending robotics back to the lunar surface on the south side of the Moon and the far side. And from then, after I started to go through my PhD, I started to become delved into the realm of science communication. And this is where it really started to draw me in more into space because I really loved trying to share more about what people in the space community 
actually do and how they contribute to the general public. Because for me, I think that's a topic that's very important and it's what, not one that's talked, I think, enough about when it comes to, if we think about the entire global population. And so since then, after I completed my PhD, I wanted to take a little bit of a detour from my career to see if I can focus more on the science communication side of planetary science and research. And that's what led me to my position being an outreach coordinator with Western University's um, engineering faculty. It's a super exciting journey and path because you're doing it more from experience level, right? You've got all this education to kind of back up any science communication that you do. And I think that adds a lot of uh, credibility. So that's really exciting. And yeah, definitely resonate with the idea that uh, SciComm especially is a little bit um, unexplored. And also, I, I think that there is probably a right way to do it. And it's cool that you're uh, dabbling in that now, which is a little bit of a pivot from your more very true academic career path thus far. So that's super exciting. Um, so speaking of your SciComm interests, tell me a little about your podcast. So I know that you've got your own podcast as well called Diaries of Space Explorers. So tell me how you started this and a little bit more about your motivation and vision for the podcast. Of course. So I started the Diaries of Space Explorers with the number one goal to bridge the gap between the space sector and the public. And what I mean by this is trying to build more of an understanding of why people within the space sector have pursued a career in space and also trying to highlight how you don't have to come from a traditional STEM background to get a career in space that I've interviewed guests that have had backgrounds in arts and music and more of the arts and humanities side, uh, also looking at history, law, and even business and marketing that none of, not all of them came from a hardcore engineering or science background which is why still a lot of people today believe that if you don't have either of those backgrounds, there's no chance of getting a career in the space sector, which is now no longer true. And what I really wanted to try and highlight with the with my guests is to when they tell this story is the fact that space truly has a place for everyone and not just in terms of being the space sector, accepting everyone to become a part of it, but also understanding how space industry and the, and space exploration has actually brought benefits back to humanity because that's really the number one topic that can really bring everyone together in this. Because if we actually can see the value in space exploration more, it can bring a greater understanding to the global community about why we do all this work in space exploration and why we see, see all these. Because if they have that understanding, then there's just more communication and a connection between the, the growth of the space sector and how it actually gives back to everyone. Instead of everyone thinking that the space sector is just for people to send uh, very expensive payloads into space and they don't really see any value coming back to them. And that is what really motivated me to start the podcast. And I also started it during the pandemic where virtual podcasting and just podcasting in general was starting to take an uprise in popularity because since everyone was stuck inside, there wasn't really, there was very limited ways people could get their information and podcasting I knew was one of the best ways to do it. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I think uh, it's a very similar journey to our podcast here as well, because same thing, it started over the pandemic and just felt just felt very good about the fact that able to have a very direct channel to people who are interested in this topic. I think that's uh, very exciting, especially for you to be part of, because I feel like SciComm, you could also combat a lot of misinformation, uh, which I'm sure you're you're doing with your podcast as well, as well as just expanding the awareness of the audience, right? Like you said, you interviewed people from so many different sectors. 
and really illustrating that there is a lot of cross-sectionality within space and it's not really just for one traditional academic path. It's really for everyone. And there's so many opportunities. So I think that's that's super awesome about your, your podcast. I'd love to give it a listen and get more involved as well. So tell me about another initiative that you've done on the side. You've recently launched something that I was reading about in my research called the Awareness of Space Initiative. So tell me more about this initiative and how it sort of supports things like your podcast and your interest in science communication in general, and how can the general public get more involved in it? So the Awareness of Space Initiative, which I, as yes, as you said, I only just launched last week, sort of just a branching of my podcast. I'm trying to amplify one of the messages I try to be consistent with in all my episodes. And that is trying to share more about the benefits of space exploration. That's the primary goal of the initiative is to bring more of this awareness to the global community. Because I, as I said before, I truly believe this is a topic that should be talked about more in social media and mainstream media. And I don't mean it as a way of saying that this topic is never talked about, because that's not true. There are a lot of space science communicators and scientists and engineers and other administrators that do talk about this. But I still think it's a message that becomes undersaturated compared to other things that science communicators do talk about. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this initiative to really try and reach out to the public, try to talk about the benefits of space exploration, but also hear their responses of what they think the benefits of space, space exploration are and how they get their information about this. Because if we can learn more about what the public are receiving, it can give more information for the space community to maybe figure out how they can maybe adapt how they communicate information or is there information they're talking too much about or is there information they're not talking about enough or are there better ways of communicating or are there certain platforms that are used more than others? I still, I think these are, this is very important information. And I think that's just me being biased coming from a science background. Uh, the more data you can collect, the more arguments you can make for making changes, how you can actually communicate and share information and data. So that's really wh why I started the initiative. And for the public to get involved, on the if you follow the my Instagram for my podcast, The Diaries of Space Explorers, I have on the post links to a survey where people can share their inf submit their information about how they hear about space information, what type of information they receive, where they actually find it, and if there is any information they believe is maybe missing or not talked about enough. And I take all this information in to try and learn more from the public, to then tell the space community more how we should be changing, how we communicate. And they can also, this is an option uh, in the initiative, they can submit their answers and photos of themselves to be highlighted in a social media series where I put together slides and then I can introduce the various people that with their consent, of course, uh, they can share their answers and then really express more about what their stance on space exploration are and what they think it means to be to understand the benefits of space exploration. Sounds like a really cool initiative. And it's nice that uh, it's something that's sort of an offshoot from the podcast that you can focus on and make it very targeted uh, to the audience. So that's awesome. I want to dive a little bit deeper into your background now, because I know this is more of the current state of the stuff that you're doing, but I think it's built upon a lot of the very interesting experiences you've had to date. So I know that you've been part of a couple different analog missions. Tell me 
what it is about analog field work that you find so interesting. Why is it an effective method of research? And any of your particular, you know, missions that have been very special to you? I'd love to hear about some of the stories from that. I would say that one of the favorite things about my PhD was the analog field work I got to do. It was something I was always excited for, even with all the logistical complications that can come behind it. It was always number one on my list, and I never hesitated to become involved. And always what it entails is an analog, the different I probably should take a step back and maybe quickly say, when you have anal here analog mission and analog fieldwork, uh, the difference between the two are, is that an analog mission is that you're using either robotics or humans and simulating a mission being carried out on another planetary body. And an analog fieldwork is you're trying to understand geologic features on another planetary body by studying geologic features on Earth that have similarities in shape, in appearance, in composition, chemistry, and probably their history, how they formed. And for me, I think analog fieldwork was one of the, is what is, and I actually have a very strong opinion on this, I think it is the best way to understand different planetary bodies over trying to just research as much information about data we collect from orbiters and spacecraft for the sake that it's the best way for us to really understand what is happening on these planetary bodies until we could actually send humans and a lot more robotic platforms to study these planetary bodies. And some of the biggest examples are the Moon and Mars, because even though we have sent robotics to both planetary bodies and we've had humans on the Moon, we still have a very limited understanding of what their compositions are, what we can really understand how they formed. But if we really want to learn more about how certain features on these planetary bodies formed, we have access to the best natural laboratory that humans can gain access to. And that's Earth. We have so many geologic features that we can learn from that can help us understand other planetary bodies because all these planets formed around pretty much at the same time and we can see clear similarities between uh, geologic features. The biggest difference usually is slight compositional differences or their size for scale. Like usually things on the Moon and Mars are much larger than what we have on Earth. But generally, you can get the same idea of how they formed. And I think for me, one of the most eye-opening times when I was doing analog field work was probably back in 2021 when I was at the Mistassin Lake impact structure. And I was trying to understand more about how uh, melt that's formed from when meteorites strike the surface of a planetary body um, impact and modify the rocks on a, on a planet. I think that's when I really started to get a really good idea about how complicated that process is when you're in the field. Because NASA and other space agencies talk about trying to find rocks that have melted from meteorite impacts to bring back to Earth so they can better date uh, the, these impact events. But when you look at them on Earth, it's just so difficult to find the right samples to return because they're either very extensive and you have to be very selective of what you bring back, or you might struggle to find the samples you're looking for because there are so many different other, so many other processes that impact the samples and wet down. On the Moon, it's a little bit easier because you just have to worry about micrometeorite bombardments. But Mars, you have to worry about aeolian processes which is caused by wind past uh, water systems that might have eroded rocks and also um, other meteorite bombardments and it just makes you wonder and appreciate just how complicated a lot of geologic processes are and 
could also just give you a better understanding and appreciation of how complex these processes are on other planetary bodies. And it just shows that how useful, how useful the Earth is for helping us understand other planets and moons. And I think that's just always one of my favorite things about analog field work. Yeah, that's super cool to hear about. And I think um, you must have had a lot of good survival type of activities that you guys were focusing on. And I imagine field work can be physically draining as well. So I think it's an amazing experience, practical experience that you gained while actually studying a lot of it in, in your classroom and just getting that hands-on experience. And it's the closest thing probably that you can do to yeah, experiencing space or like you said, other planetary bodies and their formation. So I find that really fascinating, super cool. Aside from this, I wanted to know what are remote missions like? So I, I really like that you gave that distinction between uh, missions and field work. Um, I know that you do remote missions for your research as well sometimes, like the Raven mission in Iceland. So tell me a little bit about that mission and what truly is your absolute favorite part of, of that practical field work and what you learned from that specific mission. Yeah, of course. So the Raven mission, which is the Rover Aerial Vehicle Exploration Network, which is a NASA funded project. So we were a support team that got funding from the Canadian Space Agency's FAST grant to go and act as additional team members for this mission. And the primary goal of Raven is to test how a, a rover and a drone, similar to or an expansion of the Ingenuity helicopter, can be combined to improve the impact of sample return missions on Mars and other planetary bodies that have an atmosphere. So we were trying to see how this could maybe also benefit Titan, but the focus was Mars. And we wanted to we first had to figure out how could a rover and a drone work together to pick set tar targets of interest to then go analyze and potentially sample. But at the same time, can a drone truly provide more coverage and better geologic context for a mission when you have a rover that's on the ground? So the biggest thing for us was to really just test to see, could a drone do this first on its own? without interference from a rover and also could a rover do this on its own which we know from experience and the fact that we've had spirit opportunity curiosity and now mars 2020 on the surface of mars it does work but we wanted to make sure that with a rover mission without the drone interfering we could then compare the results of that mission to what's going to be happening next summer when you would combine the rover and the drone to see how the data compares because if it's the same then we know the drone doesn't add much value but if it's a lot different and it's actually improved the, the results, then we know the drone adds a lot more value if we include it on rover missions to Mars. And one of the favorite things I find about this, that, this project and the fact that it was remote is that it doesn't just involve having a good academic understanding of the mission and the geology, but it also makes you realize that you need to have good logistical and communication skills for these to always these types of missions to become successful in remote locations uh, for really for three reasons. The first one is that you are in a remote location. So the environment's a lot harsher. You're having to think of a lot more hazards and health and safety that can happen on a day-to-day -day basis, not just while you're in the field working, but also while you're at camp, since you're further away from uh, hospitals and more well-equipped emergency services. And you also have to think about the natural landscape that it's not as 
um, safeguarded as a city or a well-kept some grassy field. Uh, the second one is that you realize since you're in a remote location and people are going to be working with you almost every day and no one's going to really have much, a lot of spaces they can have that's their own time. You have to be very good at communicating and sharing messages and feelings about the not just the mission but people's well-being because that could be the key the turning point towards a team working really well to a team starting to become dysfunctional falling apart because everyone's either very stressed or they're not releasing any um hard hard comings that are happening to them because they're, they're doing remote field work and the third part is that it really shows how people can work together as a team in harsh and harsh environments. Because if people are able to work under these conditions where you have to make decisions quickly, uh, anything can go wrong, not just for the mission, but also for health and safety, that people can easily work in these conditions when it comes to mission control work, when you're in a much more controlled environment, you're indoors and you're in a safer uh, scenario. So I think those are just the three things that make me really appreciate this type of work and why I love it so much is that you don't just gain a lot more science background, but you gain, I think, a lot more logistical communication and even life skills from it because working in these types of scenarios can really give you better perspectives of what it means to work in the team and what it means to be a potential leader in planetary science. One of the things which I thought was super fascinating about your career trajectory, as well as the work that you currently do, is that it's backed up by so much of this practical experience that I bet that it bleeds over into each other, right? You you enhance your academic learnings by some of the practical things that you did and also apply some of the academic learnings that you've had so far into your analog space missions and learn about other aspects as well, like you mentioned, health and safety. All of those things are super, super critical to a successful mission. So that's really awesome to hear. I really enjoyed chatting with you today, Gavin. That's all the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners, maybe students who are you know, aspiring science communicators or even aspiring scientists in general uh, in geology and planetary science that maybe are looking to get into it, that you could give them some insight about your career path so far and what your hopes are for the future in the space sector? I would say if you're wanting to learn more about how you can combine science uh, science and academia and science communication, you really don't want to be afraid to do something that's out of, out of the box thinking. I mean, it's still becoming, it's still not as common for a lot of people to come from a hardcore academic background to go into science communication because they're con still considered two different fields. But I think they complement each other so much more than either or on their own. Because I think, as you mentioned at the beginning, you have the credibility of academia, but then you have the communication skill set of a science communicator, which the majority of scientists and engineers still don't have to this date because they never received that training. But then some science communicators don't have as strong as an academic background to support a lot of what they say with facts and data. So I would say always think of outside of the box thinking and never be afraid to try something that might be unique or abnormal because it's usually the abnormal ideas we have when it comes to science communication academia that can really put us forward. That's amazing. I really like that messaging, um, especially towards the end. I think, yeah, thinking out of, out of the box is hard to do, but I think it's cool once you've got a, 
you know, a bunch of experience and your experiences kind of start to amalgamate and eventually you find something that you're really passionate about, which you have kind of done, even as a scientist, you saw those data points and maybe areas of interest that you had, and then you were able to kind of now be really involved in outreach and be involved in science communication with all these side initiatives as well. So I think that's super cool. And I, I'm sure you'll be an inspiration for many students that are listening um, and many people that would like to have a similar career path. So that's amazing. Uh, well, thank you so much for chatting with us today, Gavin. I had a lot of fun talking to you and we hope to see you again soon on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's been great chatting with you. Stay tuned for uh, more exciting episodes from the Canadian Space Society. Bye.